it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 162. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to go back to the well, and we're going to talk about circle of competence again. Uh, this is going to be part two. So we had some other thoughts that we wanted to expound upon after last week's episode. We really enjoyed doing that conversation, and we had some other ideas that we wanted to talk a little bit about circle of competence. It's a very important subject, and it's a very important topic, and I think it really needs to be explored as much as we possibly can. So without any other conversation from me, I'm going to turn it over to my friend Andrew, and we're going to go ahead and get started. I, I completely agree with that. I think it is a topic that does need extensive coverage and particularly because there's more to it than, than we, we talked about. So I got this idea from three different sources, actually. One was a podcast with Jeremy Grant. Um, you're familiar with him, right, Dave? Yes. Maybe you can um, intro why we should listen to him. <laughs> for uh, well, he, he is a partner for a firm called GMO, if I remember correctly. And he is a value investor, very, very smart guy. But his specialty is fixed income, particularly bonds. That's where I'm familiar with him from. And that's frankly all I really know. I just know he has like a ton of money and has had a really, really good track record. And he's he's one of those like value investing legends. I didn't know about the bonds part, but um, I also know I think he... Either he was like had a really popular book or a really academic, really popular academic study. I can't remember. But anyway, so he he brings up this idea or this this kind of finding that he he came across, and so he was talking about how there's a lot of opportunity for people, and I believe he was talking about investors too. But basically, there's a lot of opportunity in the holes that people aren't filling. So. You know, you have a world where everything's getting so specialized that it's really the overlap of that specialization that can make huge opportunities and really lead to a lot of great discoveries and ideas. So he gave an example where he said that 
you know, climate change is obviously a thing that's been on people's minds a lot lately, and it's um, something that scientists are trying to fix. And so on the one hand, you have the climate change scientists. On another hand, you have the agricultural ag- agricultural soil scientists. And he said he was shocked to find out that not only did they not interface with each other, like in my mind, it makes sense too. It's like, I'm sure there's things that go into the ground that uh, we could study, and, and that has to do with climate change. He found that they, they they didn't talk to each other, and they didn't really know the basics of the other person's, I don't know what you call it, practice, expertise. So the agricultural science, soil scientist didn't really know much about the the principles of climate change and vice versa. So he just, you know, that's something that really stuck out to me, particularly because I was also watching a documentary and this one's on Netflix. I actually recommend if if you're a nerd like me to go check it out. I think it's called Inside Bill's Brain. It's a documentary about Bill Gates. And among a lot of cool things that they talk about, they talk about his story, how he came up. They talk about his relationship with his wife, talk about the, his relationship with his business partners and coworkers. And you know, later on, obviously, he leaves Microsoft and he goes on to his philanthropic adventures. And so he has the Bill Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so one of the things he worked on kind of in this retirement phase was eradicating, oh man, and now I feel really bad because I can't remember if it was Ebola or um, malaria. It was it was one of those two diseases. I, I think one one disease got figured out by scientists and another one, there was a lot of issues in this particular country specifically for whatever reason, the vaccines weren't working. And so, you know, they, they spent so much money on this problem and they just could not figure out for the life of them why this illness would keep reappearing. And so what he found eventually with enough data was that there were all these circles where, where these immunizations were happening. It was on the edges of those circles, you know, where two circles would combine where the immunizations were not being done because one person in their circle assumed that the other person in the other circle was hitting that area. And so whether that reason or another reason, these these edges were not being covered. And so that's why the thing couldn't be solved. And and I just I, I see a lot of similarities with that. It just makes me think about, you know, how does that apply to us with the circle of competence and are there a lot of opportunities for us if we can kind of hone in on a couple of specialties? And so, you know, something I, I presented to Dave and I, I wanted to share with you guys was maybe some examples of archetypes of, you can almost think of it as like mental models. So, you know, how do we even de- define circle of competence? And then if we can find places where those circles can merge then then find a lot of opportunity. So I guess the last thing that made me think about this, I was reading a book about oil and they talk about one of the most successful businesses that's ever pretty much of all time. Like if you think about monopoly, you think about like greedy American capitalism, you just have to go back to standard oil and they were probably the biggest company in the United States. And the the way they they dominated the oil industry was just absolutely fascinating. And and it's something that's 
that's really fun to learn about. But it was interesting for me to read about the history of the oil industry in America and hear that different companies within the that industry all had their own unique strategies. And there was one strategy that that worked for a very, very long time that that shone out above all the rest. And it was because of John D. Rockefeller. And he was just very, very good at being efficient, driving every little part of the business. Like the book talked about how he was just super, super meticulous. He he counted things down to every last cent. And so he was able to squeeze profits both from the revenue side and from you know the cost side and really the way he built networks of transportation to bring oil up and down through the states the way he whether you want to call it ruthlessly or not would squeeze out competitors he would get into price wars and you know similar to what Amazon did they he would because he was so big and and had so much money was so powerful he would drop prices down to squeeze out all of the weaker competitors and then once he had a monopoly in that market then bring the prices back up and just have huge profits. And so, you know, on one one kind of side of that industry, you had him. And then on the other side, in other parts of the world, you had other leaders of these companies who were maybe not the same personality as John D. Uh, Rockefeller, but they had other really unique strengths that they used to their advantage. So another example is a person who was able to bring a technological innovation and what that technological innovation did was allow them to ship oil to much further parts. Uh, They were able to do it over the sea and that really changed the industry too. And then he combined it with his political connections to be able to use this canal that cut the, the journey. And so that was their way of competing and it worked very well too. And so you really, I think when you think about analyzing stocks and and trying to figure out, you know, well, how am I going to compete with Wall Street? How am I going to compete with people who do this full time? I think that there's there's some advantages that can be made by trying to compartmentalize um, stocks and, and maybe separate it into separate circle of competences that you can... A, see if see if it, see if you feel like you could have some expertise in it, and then B, see what the other side of the circle competence is, and then see where the over if there's any overlap. So I'll give a couple more examples, but the first I'll say, like if we look at some of Buffett's best stocks that he ever purchased, I think of Coca Cola as an example. And so if we look at Coca Cola, obviously it's a consumer brand company. You know, Coca-Cola, the the most popular brand of all time, got exported out throughout the world. I've talked about that over and over and over again. But at the same time, one of their best competitive advantages was the fact that they controlled their supply chain so well. So when Roberto Guizetta, who is the CEO, when he came in, he really wanted to make sure that that he, he basically came in and kind of cracked the whip a little bit and he he pressured a lot of the weak bottlers out. So basically, Coca-Cola had their formula, and then they would sell it to these bottlers in some sort of license agreement. And then the bottlers would 
manufacture it, put the Coca-Cola in there, and then ship it out, and they would go out to, to customers. And so the, the bottlers that were not doing a good job were reflecting poorly on Coca-Cola's brand. And so he, he really made sure to, through his, his various kind of financial uh, moves, he made sure that, to push those out to really make the other bottlers step up their game. And he invested a lot of money in doing that. And he would even buy weak bottlers and then flip them and then sell them. And so it was more like a win-win. And so, you know, when Guizetta came in, after he came in, his meetings became like he like he became popular because he made so much money for shareholders that we're talking about like 20, 30% a year for an extended period of time. So I think that's one example of where circle of competences can overlap. And maybe we can present a couple other examples, Dave, to to give a idea of if I'm somebody who knows consumer brands pretty well, obviously there's so many to to look at. But a consumer brand like Coca-Cola is going to be different than a consumer brand like Apple, where Apple's not necessarily worried about... I mean, they are worried about um, all the things that you would have to worry about with the supply chain, but they have something else that's a bigger part, right? And I think that would that would land a Coca-Cola consumer brand to be different than an Apple consumer brand. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I love the idea of the, the different archetypes that we were talking about before we came on the air. I think that's a brilliant idea. And I'm excited to share this with people, the idea of kind of how this works. And uh, the, the Apple example is a, a perfect illustration because you can argue that Apple is certainly a consumer brand because it's a customer facing business. They have stores. Uh, they deal with the public, but when they're selling their iPhones, their iWatches, their MacBooks, whatever device it is that they're selling or service that they're selling, uh, it's certainly customer facing in that respect, but they're most certainly a tech company as well because they have to produce all those things. They have to think up those ideas and be creative and come up with the, the idea for something like an iPhone or a MacBook or an iWatch and anything else that they may try to do in the future. So it certainly falls into both of those categories. And I think that's a, a great idea. Another another idea along those same lines is Uber. Uh, Uber is certainly a customer-facing company because they deal with all the people that work for them, that drive the cars, and then, of course, the customers that they pick up and take to their destinations are certainly customer-facing. But then they're also falling back into the tech world because of the app and the technology that's involved to allow the people that drive for them to find customers to pay them to pay Uber and to pay the people that are driving the car. So it, it goes both ways. So it certainly falls into both categories, I think. I think, and I think it sounds like common sense when we lay it out, but if you really think about the implications of it, if if you're studying businesses that did really well, like go back to the the John D. Rockefeller example, if you try to run Apple like you ran like he ran Standard Oil, it's just not going to work. You know, it's 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 not the same skill set. It's not the same business strategy. They're two completely different things. Right, exactly. And I think along the same lines of what we're talking about with Buffett, going back to his portfolio, uh, Geico is another perfect example of 
a company that it's an insurance company. That's what they do, but it's also customer facing and it's a consumer brand because a, everybody knows who Geico is. You have the little green gecko running around marketing the company and everybody knows what Geico is, but it's, it's also dealing with, with customers selling its product to people. And it also falls into financials because it's an insurance company and all the things that go into valuing an insurance company and dealing with investments and money and premiums and all the different aspects of that. So it, it, it encompasses two different kinds of, of archetypes, if you will. And I, I think that's a, you know, a great example. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, well, I guess, well, there are a couple others I, I can think of, like Gillette as another example from Buffett's portfolio where tech doesn't change a razor. So we're not going to apply, you know, you're not going to spend much in R- on R&D. As an example, if, if you're a tech focused investor, maybe you're looking a lot at R&D or, you know, what's the reputation? How are they drawing talent in those type of things versus like Gillette's more like Coca-Cola where um, there's commodity aspects to it. There might be a, a razor maybe isn't necessarily better than another, even if you could claim it has all the best tech in the world. People don't really care. It's not really changing somebody's life, but that brand is really important. And so if I were looking at a company like Gillette, I would be looking to see how are they dealing with distribution and the commodity aspect of that business like Coca-Cola would be, like an oil company would be, but also how are they managing their brand and again, that's a, a lot different from Apple has a brand, but they also need to spend a lot because their products need to be fast enough. You know, they, they the phones have right. to have the right camera and they have to have the right memory and the right speed. And so that that's that's kind of as I look through the different types, I'm starting to see a lot of businesses look similar and maybe they have a main focus and then like a side focus. So I really think yes. there's like commodity would be one because that's that could be a beast on its own because you could have commodities that maybe fluctuate with up and down in price and then a commodity type that maybe just stays more static. Um, but I think in general, you would look at it like a commodity business and then you have consumer brand and then you have tech and then you have finance. And, and those are the really the four big ones that popped into my head. And I really feel like you can categorize most any stock as a combination of two, where I think sometimes the trap is we're we're categorizing them as just one, or maybe we're not even thinking of that. We think that each stock is its own unique thing, but it's really that they're following similar strategies and similar paths that you've seen before. They're just called different things. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. 
It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Exactly. And I, I think the thing that I like about looking at companies like this is it also helps you if you have a strength in a commodity, for example, or you have a strength in consumer brands, then it's a little easier for you to expand to include something like tech into that, I guess, archetype or that circle of competence because it, I was thinking about that. We were talking about this earlier this week about Intel. And as I'm looking at the company, I realized I don't have to know every little in and out of how the tech actually works. I just need to understand it enough to understand what the demand for it will be, not only now, but in the future. And so that I can try to determine whether that's something that would be of benefit to the people that they sell it to, but then also to me as an investor, because that's going to make the company more relevant for a longer period of time, which is obviously something I want when I invest in a company. So I think looking at these, as we get closer to the edges, like you were talking about with the viruses in Bill Gates, I think that was a great example because as you get closer to the edges, then things start to get a little bit fuzzier. But then if you can narrow down what it is you're really trying to learn, I think you can 
I think you can overcome some of that fuzziness at that point to be more comfortable about certain aspects of that. Uh, thinking about other companies that kind of go along with something like this, I think of, uh, I mean, go back to Intel. I think not only are they a, a tech company, but they're also a commodity company and they have obviously the tech where they're building stuff and being creative and trying to come up with all these great ideas to make the technology better. But they're also in much more important and not more important, but it's equally important is the distribution and having the channels to be able to to sell those products across the world. And if you don't have that chain, then you're just kind of barking up a wrong tree. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think what, when you talk about Intel in particular, I think what kind of contributes to looking at them as a commodity is what they're selling is really based more on supply and demand than anything else. Uh, in the sense of, I, I'm using the same examples over and over again, but it's, it, I think it's easy with Apple. Apple, really their demand is set by how popular it is and, and how much people want it. Whereas, somebody like Intel who's going to be selling their chips to other consumer facing brands, they're more worried about, you know, is our chip because the chip can be really perform really well, but also if it's not cheap enough, the the customers will just go with a competitor, right? So they're really kind of subject to those prices and, and the price aspect of a commodity. And also they have to deal with the fact that company is not going to be very loyal to their suppliers um, if you're not getting the job done, if, if the performance isn't there, or if the price is getting too expensive. And so that's something that's harder to overcome than a consumer-facing brand where they're going to get a lot more wiggle room. And so that's why you do have to look at that aspect of it in addition to the tech side too. And so yeah, kind of going, going, going along with that, I really liked what something you texted me last week, Dave. You mentioned because um, you know we were kind of talking a little more about what we talked about last week about the difference between the FPGAs and the A6, and and so you know if 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 that's a little loss on you, you as the listener, you can go back and, and listen to last week's episode. We kind of introed that, um, and so you know I was talking about how it kind of made me doubt the company a little bit, and I didn't really know how the whole Altera acquisition was going to work out for them based on the fact that you can't know much about how the tech that Altera's focus on will fare in the future. Brought up was, well, can't the cost or can't the size and scale of Intel bring a tailwind to that and make it easier for them, you know, not to make it a guarantee or anything, but those additional resources can really help what Altair brings to Intel. And, and that's something where I think that kind of goes back to maybe how how traditional business in the commodity standpoint can work. And if you mix that with tech, then now you're you're talking about using financial the big financial resources that Intel has to make some technological innovation that wouldn't have been possible if Altair was just by itself. And that can change the future too. And I think that is something, you know, we talked about a lot of the bear sides of Intel last week. I think that's something that could be a bullish thing for Intel, um, particularly if the price is right to, to, to have that kind of upside. It's, I think it's something to consider. 
It definitely is something to consider. And, and that was one of the, the more bullish things I was thinking about with the company. And that's kind of why I said it to you last week. And I, I think that that is one of the, I guess, advantages that the company has. And to further solidify that for me today, I was reading through AMD's 10K. And that was one of the things that they mentioned over and over and over again in their 10K uh, was the impact that Intel has on the semiconductor industry because of their size, because of their their uh, market cap, and because of the money that they have. They have the resources and the financial wherewithal to go out and buy more of these companies and impact what's going on in the industry a little bit more than AMD does because AMD doesn't have the same financial wherewithal to do some of those things. And that to me gives me an idea that maybe Intel, even though they, I know they've been getting bashed because they haven't quote unquote, you know, what have they done for me lately kind of thing. And I, uh, what little I know about tech, it seems like that it's a little more about when things are, not happening as quickly as everybody wants them to, then sometimes people are a little like, yeah, why have you, what have you done for me lately? But uh, I also go back to the idea of Microsoft. Microsoft years ago, before they were the tech giant that we all know today, they were an acquirer of companies that would help them expand upon the different products that they had. For example, uh, the internet. Before Internet Explorer became the big thing back in the day, they weren't really getting where they wanted to go, so they went out and bought a company called Netscape that helped them become the Internet Explorer that kind of killed AOL. And so that was really a great acquisition that Microsoft did that allowed them to take the next step in the internet world. Uh, another one was, I don't remember the name of the company, but they were struggling with Microsoft Excel. And so they bought a company that was working on a program that was very similar to it. And that's what morphed into Microsoft Excel, which Andrew and I are both huge fans <laughs> of. And Andrew is really way better at that than I am, but you can't be a finance geek without Excel. And so I think that Intel, I think that that is something that I can't predict to that because, again, I don't know enough about the specific tech part of it, but I just think that they're in a better spot financially because of the size of the company where if they're getting stuck and, and, and struggling to create this specific product, I don't see any reason why they can't go out and try to acquire a company to try to help them do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And and there's a bazillion different companies out there that have done that and will continue to do that. Uh, I believe Amazon has probably done that along the way as well. So it doesn't always have to come from within the company. And so I think to me, that's something that I'm excited about. And I know that Altera was a company that they bought and they're still working on getting everything, I guess, assimilated, if you will. And I think that that will lead to great things for Intel in the near future and down the road. I think it most possibly could. And I really think it, it it's the perfect example for everything we're talking about today because you can get, it, it can be very easy to be so lost in the tech part of tech when you're not realizing that something like this is possible. And so what you're talking about with what Microsoft did would be a perfect example too, you know? So to say if these companies that they acquired were really small businesses, 
Um, and what if they were publicly traded? I'm sure the tech people would be enthused about these small companies and say Microsoft is washed up and, and isn't cutting edge, uh, not considering the other possibility that their size and scale and acquisition strategy, if they do it correctly, um, can help them overcome the whole old dinosaur effect. But you won't know one or the other unless you know enough about both. And so I think in Intel's case, it, it depends on if they're if it's likely that they're making good acquisitions and if they have a prudent acquisition strategy. And so for somebody who's trying to pursue that, maybe they look at other companies who have been successful with acquisitions and see if if Intel is following a similar path. And then you can take that third circle of competence, which God forbid I even call a circle of competence, but you know, an understanding of the numbers and the financials and, and try to figure out what they paid for these acquisitions and, and if they're in the ballpark of making sense. And I think the decision-making can become a lot better. And that's where a lot of the good returns from value investing can come if you can understand those things and maybe think outside of the box, stretch those circles and, and find find the overlaps and, and find opportunity in those overlaps. I agree. And I, I think that's what I like about talking about this. And that's what helps me uh, having you as a resource to talk about the tech part of it. Because what honestly, when I first read through Intel's 10K and I saw all those acronyms for things like ASICs and FPGA and CPUs and APUs and all that kind of stuff, I was like, what in the world is this? <laughs> and but after our conversation last week, it all started to make a lot more sense. And so when I went back and, and looked through it again, it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I may not know, again, all the tech specifics of each particular chip, but at least understand what they're designed for and what their best function is for and possible I guess, outcomes that, that they could have from selling these different chips to different companies and just a better overall idea of how the company goes. I would not consider myself a, a tech expert by any stretch, but I at least feel like I have a much better grasp on some of that aspect of the business. And then when I take that and go look at the numbers, then things start to make even more sense. And that helps me realize that, hey, okay, maybe this is uh, maybe this is an opportunity waiting to happen. And one of the other things that I liked about Intel was that they, they have other irons in the fire. So they're not just sitting on semiconductor chips as their complete total bread and butter. They have other irons in the fire that they're stoking that could lead them to even greater revenues in the near future. And so those are things that for me, make me a little more excited about the company. And again, it's because I have a better idea of the, of the business of Intel as opposed to just the numbers of Intel. And that, that's what helps, you know, when you're trying to value or analyze any of these companies, once you have a better idea of the overall picture of the company, then it starts to make it a, not, not easier, but it does make it a little more less stressful, I guess. Like, oh, I, I guess I can kind of start to get this a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's really going to show too when it comes time to sell, either if you're thinking of selling or 
you're nervous because the stock goes down and you don't know whether you should sell. That's where the, that circle of confidence is going to come in because if you understand what's going on, then you're more likely to make a decent decision versus freaking out and then feeling like you don't know anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And, and for me, that's how I felt when a lot of the banks were getting spanked uh, back in, in March and April, because I understood the businesses and understood how a lot of them worked and realized that a good majority of that was just overall negativity of, of the market. But the underlying fundamentals of some of those companies were still cooking along and they would start to bounce back and some of them have. So uh, it's going to take longer, but it just it, it does give you a lot more confidence to understand what's going on. Well, because you understood how much they have in reserves and and how that would affect, you know, how that cushions them against defaults and everything, right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, so there you go. So, well, should we answer one question before we sign out here? Yeah. Why don't we? Okay. All right. So I'll go ahead and read this here. All right. So we have. Hey, Andrew, I've been listening to your podcast and started investing in April and became a subscriber of your research e-letter in June. For this month's stock pick, I decided to wait until my second pay period to invest in the recommended stock pick. Uh, the stock has price has gone up to 144.31. Is it too expensive now to invest in it or should I wait until it go down, down again if it does? To be honest, I didn't expect it to go up that amount in a short period of time. I thought if I waited till my second pay period, I could get it around the 129.53 stock price. It seems like the best way to approach this next time is to invest in a stock pick as soon as you recommend it. I would value your input. Thanks. I appreciate your guidance, Michael. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Um, this is kind of a touchy subject for me, and it's it's the reason why I picked it because it kind of grinds my gears a bit. I guess I get a lot of requests. I wouldn't say a lot, but I've I've gotten requests where it's it seems like people want to build a portfolio from scratch. And I you know, I get that. Like you're coming in new and everything. I, I just I get these these questions where people say, you know, I have this much to invest and you know, I wanna build a portfolio. What what are the 10, 15, 20 stocks I should spread it out into? Over and over and over again, it's just it, it just doesn't work that way, right? It's you don't have fifteen to twenty great ideas in a given month, and so something I'm really reining in on with with the e leather is making sure that the stocks that I recommend are still buys, and so a stock like this one that Michael talks about. You know, when I recommended it, I saw it as a good price, and now it's it's much higher than that. And so, if it were me personally, I, I probably wouldn't buy at this price. Last I checked, it was up something like twenty percent in a couple of weeks. And so, is it a good company? Yeah, is it a good stock? Probably, but has the business grown twenty percent in the past few weeks? I think it's hard to say yes. There, there. Of course, there always is the possibility that that it's still cheap, even though it's gone up twenty percent. And so that's something I'm I'm thinking of as as each, as I as I release each issue, I'm looking at every stock I have and trying to determine, you know, is it still cheap enough? And, and you'll never have the perfect answer, but 
obviously, I, I think the obvious answer is yes, please do try the, to buy the stock when I recommend it. But, you know, on the broader scale of the big picture question, you know, should I buy a stock that's, let's say, 10%, 15%, 20% higher than where Andrew recommended it? Is it something I should buy now? And, you know, I just, it, it's a case by case basis, but, a lot of times, if it has gone up a lot in a short amount of time, there's a good chance that the business hasn't grown that much. So a lot of the times, I'm probably going to stay out of it. And so I'm trying to be as clear as I can in, in the e-leather issues. And maybe that's something I need to work on in the future of really just being selective and really just saying, you know, these are the stocks that haven't gone up in price since I recommended it. So these are still good buys. But a lot of the other ones, even though they're great companies, might not be good buys at these prices. And so if you're wanting to microwave your portfolio right, and have a fully diversified portfolio by tomorrow, there's nothing we can do about it. And so maybe that's, maybe that's the approach moving forward. But I think, I think there's a difference between a good stock, a good company, and a good company with a good stock at a good price. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about a circle of competence. It's a very important subject and it's something that needs to be considered very strongly when you're working on what kinds of companies you want to buy and what kinds of areas you want to branch out into. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you on next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs>